All right, lesson number five of the Trinity. This is anti-Trinitarian heresies. We're going to look at these uh, in depth. I have really a lot of reading and probably just a little bit of exposition to do this morning on these subjects. One of the things I have found in studying these heresies is that they mostly originated with good intentions, and we'll look at that here in a moment. The word heresy in the original Greek, hereticos, it just means to cause division. So like when Titus says a heretic after the second and third admonition reject, you weren't technically talking about someone who was teaching bad doctrine. You were, teach, you were dealing with someone who was causing divisions in the churches. But hereticos or a heretic, and what does the heretic produce but heresy, that has evolved now to mean what we would say is blasphemous doctrine. These are technically heresies, what we're about to look at. They were rejected by the First Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, about 325 or so. And there are churches today that hold some of these. And though they technically hold to a heresy, they do so with the best of intentions, and we'll expound upon that more. I want you to know that we have to be students of the Word, and we build all doctrine by studying as many scriptures as possible. We do not build doctrine on experience. We do not build doctrine on grandma's experience. We build doctrine on the B-I-B-L-E. If it is written in the Word of God, it, it is data, if you will, that we can then incorporate into a, a hypothesis that we call doctrine. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's look at this here. It'll jump into our lesson. I have done thorough research into the origins and names of these diverse anti-Trinitarian heresies that have arisen since the church's inception. These heresies resulted from theologians and teachers either overemphasizing or underemphasizing the various persons of the Godhead. And it might be worth noting, again, that the Trinity doctrine is the best way to explain what we see in the Scriptures. There is one God in essence, but three persons in divinity. So one God, but three persons, and all three persons are worshipped and acknowledged as God through Scripture. So the Trinity as a doctrine was developed coming out of the first into the second century, trying to explain what we were seeing overtly over and over again in the Scriptures. Uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, we understand that, but the word Bible is not in the Bible, neither is the word rapture but we still believe these doctrines. The Trinity is, was the best explanation, and honestly, the doctrine of Trinity was evolving for a couple hundred years. And so what we recognize even in the Nicene Creed, among other creeds, was still being developed until now, 2,000 years later, we have a thorough and better understanding. If you can understand that doctrine and scientific principle follow very parallel, whereas like with science, you make observations and observations and observations, and from those observations, you formulate a hypothesis and a theory. With doctrine, we look at Scripture, and we look at Scripture, and we look at Scripture, and we begin to formulate a doctrine. And all doctrine must be able to explain every Scripture in the same theme. Just like the doctrine of healing, we look at all Scripture on healing. We look at why people got healed, why people did not get healed. What did Jesus Christ say about healing? Not what Grandma said about healing or your denomination said about healing. What does the Bible say about healing? And the doctrine of healing has to incorporate and be able to answer all the nuances in Scripture on healing. Same with grace, same with salvation. We cannot, as Christians, ignore Scriptures we find difficult, which is what a lot of folks do who just want to stay ignorant. They ignore Scriptures they find difficult. That's foolish that's religious, you must be open to the full counsel of God's Word. In fact, you'd be wise to jump in first at the Scriptures you can't explain or the ones that seem to contradict your favorite little pet doctrine. 
Each doctrinal heresy seems accurate when only one scripture is used to back its stance. However, any and all solid doctrine must be built by evaluating all scriptural evidence, and that is called a theological hermeneutic or a, a hermeneutic studying the Bible over the entire subject. So let's look at our first anti-Trinitarian heresy. And a lot of these branch out of themselves, so there will be some repetition here. But this is monarchianism. Monarchianism, as in monarch, as in one supreme. Monarchianism was developed in the second century AD. And please note these dates. Second century AD, the apostles of the Lamb have all passed away or been martyred. You're into the first century of what's called the church fathers. And so uh, the doctrines are exploding. The church is spreading around Asia Minor, northern Africa, uh, Egypt, the Mediterranean. And so schools are being established. Theology is beginning to be established. The doctrine is going forth. And we're starting to see things need pruning. Monarchianism is a doctrine that developed only a few years after the Apostle John died. And it, um, it was developed in an attempt to maintain monotheism and combat tritheism. Now, this is why folks who reject the Trinity, they reject the Trinity because they believe it's tritheism. Three gods. When we cling to Deuteronomy, it says your, your God is but one God. Uh, the Lord your God is but one God. And we, we've taught that in the past few weeks that actually it says your God, uh, Elohim, the mighty ones, are but one God. Lord. Elohim being plural, the plural form of God, the first word used for God in the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 in the beginning, God, Elohim, the mighty ones created the heavens and the earth. And God, the mighty one said, let us make man in our image. So there we see this complexity that the Trinity doctrine tries to explain. Monarchianism tried to combat tritheism and emphasize monotheism because they just felt like uh, these Trinitarians are trying to make three gods out of one. And yet the Son is worshipped as God, the Holy Spirit is worshipped as God, and God, the Father, is worshipped as God. Monarchianism views God as one person, the Father. This view holds that God was in Jesus, just like God is in all of us, but that God was in Jesus in an especially powerful way. So these folks were somewhat Christian, technically were Christian. They were trying to explain what they were seeing in the scriptures and what they were hearing being taught. So thus Jesus was God, but only because there was a lot of God in him. <laughs> Just as a rock could be God if enough of God were in that rock. The Holy Spirit is considered a force of God, the Father, and not God. So we can already see the problems here. We've spent four weeks thoroughly hashing out the doctrine of the Trinity and looking at all the scriptures that just scream Trinity at us. Uh, and to this day, Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians cling to this doctrine, though they probably wouldn't say we're monarchianists, but that's what their, their belief would be falling or be classified under. They believe that there is a God and that Jesus was made. He's something special. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses had to have their own Bible. They changed John 1.1. They just totally wipe out all the, um, uh, the, not the verbs, but the, it doesn't matter, the grammar, so that it, the word, they say the word was a God, not the word was God. And then, of course, Unitarians, we classify Unitarians as this because Unitarians, they just embrace everything. And they call it unity, and really all it is is a, a doctrine of devil. All right, next heresy, <clears throat> modalism, which is also known as modalistic monarchianism. 
or Sabellianism. And don't let these words intimidate you. It's like anything else. The more you look at them, the more they make sense. Modalism refers to modes or that God has three different modes. Modalistic monarchianism is there's one God, but he has three different modes or three different forms. We reject that. It's also called Sabellianism because Sabellia was the the teacher, the Christian, the bishop that developed this doctrine trying to explain things. Uh, This is the belief that God Almighty is one God and the three persons of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit, are just different modes by which God manifested or operated. If you're not careful, you can easily fall into that belief. And let me back up and say this. Though these are technically heresies, I would, I would easily argue that every one of us holds some kind of doctrinal belief that would probably qualify as a heresy to somebody else because we've not thoroughly searched it out. We don't fully understand our Father. Maybe we're just baby Christians. I would like to also point out, you don't have to understand anything about the Trinity to be born again. The doctrine of the Trinity was hundreds of years in development. Nobody on the day of Pentecost got it. In fact, I will remind you, the upper room was filled with the Holy Ghost. They spoke in tongues. They didn't even get that doctrine. And they won uh, 3,000 to Christ that first day. And then you know what they did the next day? They went to the temple to worship. Wait, Jesus had torn the temple veil in half. They were now walking temples, but they just haven't learned the doctrine of the church yet because the church is in its infancy stage. And God did not strike them, smite them, or excommunicate them. They were still developing their doctrine. They had yet to write any of the epistles. Peter hadn't started writing anything. Paul hadn't even been born again yet. So I say that because we need to be very careful not to start cutting people off because their understanding in one subject of God is not as perhaps advanced as ours is. Because whatever we cling to, folks might think we're a heretic, but as long as you got about 20 verses to back it up, at least you're doing it as unto the Lord. You can see how somebody might easily fall into modalism and believe that God is one God, which he is, but he has three different forms, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you could just totally be ignorant in that belief and love God and win the world and cast out demons and preach good gospel and, and, and do a great work for God. So I, even though these are heresies, I don't want us to walk around burning people at the stake. Not even in our heart. Amen. Typically, it is held that God manifested as the Father in the Old Testament, which is silly because we just proved in the last three sessions that God didn't manifest much in the Old Testament that it was mostly the Holy Spirit or the Lord Jesus in bodily form through theophanies. And the Son in the Gospels, well, he was still manifesting in the time of Acts and in the epistles. And now the Holy Spirit in the New Testament epistles in the church age. That's silly because the first person of the Trinity revealed is the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2. So <laughs> the, the, the explanation by which they hold this is flawed for whatever reason they can't see it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. First person revealed of the Trinity is not the Lord Jesus or the Father, it's the Holy Spirit. So to say that it was the Father manifesting in the Old Testament, and the Son in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit in the Epistles, is really just biblical ignorance. Because who came upon the Son when the Father spoke at the River Jordan? You have the entire trinity there. And did, what, did he divide himself? It, it, anyway. 
This view is also known as Sabellianism, after Sibelius, a third century theologian. Notice he is still considered a theologian, but his theology got a little quirky. He was doing his best to explain what he was seeing in the scriptures. He was later labeled a heretic for his anti-Trinitarian teachers, or teachings. This doctrine rejects the notion that God is three unique persons, yet one God. Oneness Pentecostals and United Apostolic Churches are modalist. Uh, we, we have mentioned T.D. Jakes is probably the most famous modalist in the land. But what I find humorous about that is T.D. Jakes is a tongue talker. Oneness Pentecostals, of which I have friends, they are modalists. That's why they're called oneness. They believe in baptism in Jesus' name only, which I don't have a problem in Jesus' name as far as, you know, the Lord said, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I think this is comical because I, I know people that would absolutely, if they could get away with it, burn you at the stake for being a modalist, which is not the Spirit of Christ, or the fruit called love, the fruit of the Spirit, or the love of the Father, but dag nabbit, he's not a modal. He's, the, he, he's a Trinitarian. We agree with that, but think about one as Pentecostals. They win people to Jesus. They get them water baptized in the same service, and they leave speaking in tongues before it's all said and done. So though they may not really, in theory, understand the Trinity, they got the Trinity working in their church. So which is better, to have the Trinity working in your church and you don't get it, or to understand the Trinity, but he doesn't support your life? So this is we're, talk, we're dealing with ignorance and not what we would say, burn them at the stake, heresy. Now, we would understand heresy today to be, you deny Christ. You deny, like, well, a lot of folks on TBN are heretics because they teach you don't have to repent anymore. They teach you don't have to forgive anymore. They teach that you've already been forgiven of all your sins. You don't even have to apologize anymore. They teach what we call is hyper grace, and that is a heresy because it sends people to hell. Ignorant misunderstandings of the Trinity won't send anybody to hell. How many of our children in the back that are born again and spirit-filled understand Trinitarian theology? None. If they die today, are they going to go to heaven or hell? Heaven. But you start telling children they don't have to repent of their sins, you'll send them to hell. That's what makes a heresy a heresy. Apostolic churches, I've only, United APC or UAP, UAC, I've only known of one church uh, that's a Pentecostal church as well. They are modalist. They reject classic Trinitarianism because they view it as polytheism. So think about that. We said Phillips, Craig, and Dean, very famous worship trio. They are uh, one as Pentecostals. We do one of their songs. It's a powerfully anointed song. Um, they are classic modalists. They deny a trinity, but they deny a trinity because they think it's polytheistic and there's but one God. So even in their denying of what is easily proven doctrine, they do it with the best of heart. And the, the, if you want to know the song that they, what we do that is their song, it's uh, uh, Let the Worshippers Arise. That's Phillips, Craig, and Dean. They are considered heretics by some. They have a lot of tremendous anointed worship songs. Now, isn't that funny? They don't understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like we do, yet God anoints their songs. So they had to be inspired by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, <laughs> hopefully you can see the point I'm making. The common analogy used to demonstrate modalism is that of God being like water in its three forms. I have used that analogy. It is classic heresy. <laughs> because it's H2O 
except it's solid, liquid, or gas. That's modalism, and it's rejected as a heretical example. So don't try to explain the Trinity with three different forms because it would be wrong. God is a, the Father is a person, the Lord Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person, and yet they're one God. That's why we're going to look at the creeds here before we're done. We won't look at all of the Athanasian Creed because it would take the whole service just to read it. But those guys, hundreds of years ago, 1,500 years ago, they succinctly wrapped up doctrine in something you could remember. Don't use solid liquid and gas. Somebody will want to burn you at the stake over it. And you won't get to use any of the water form of your example to put that water out. Patripassianism, this uh, is, uh, it literally means the father suffered. This doctrine is a version of modalistic monarchianism and was developed in the third century, so this is a hundred years after Sibelius. This view teaches that God became his own incarnate son, suffered on the cross, died, and was resurrected. Uh, this teaching denies the Trinity. But you could understand if you didn't have all the scriptures, you might come to that conclusion. How's the Son of God manifest to die for us? They don't deny the Son, they just deny uh, the Trinity. Three separate persons. That God sent his Son anointed of the Holy Spirit to redeem mankind back to him. They believe God became his own incarnate son. So that's patripassianism. You don't see any of that around today. It's a little too convoluted. Partialism. This view holds that God is divided into three parts, Father, Son, and Spirit, and is not wholly one until the three parts or thirds come together. St. Patrick of Irish fame, who, by the way, had a tremendous revival, often used the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. St. Patrick would have been labeled a heretic, except that he brought revival to Ireland. And I've had the privilege, Robert and I have been to the church, his church that was established in the 4th or 5th century and stood there on the grounds where revival broke out. And revival broke out using a four-leaf clover to teach incorrect doctrine. <laughs> because the best we can ever know is a part. And we should be advancing in our understanding of our God. I think about my children. My children, even Justice, who is only about 18 months old, he understands that I am his bigger guy in his life. But he doesn't understand the concept of a dad. Even though he calls me dad-dad. And he knows how to run to me, and he prefers me over any other man. But he doesn't understand the concept of a dad. He doesn't understand the concept of a pastor. He doesn't understand. He has no clue where I was born, where I come from, what marriage is. He doesn't understand what his sisters are to him. He doesn't understand who his mama is to him. But yet he's still my child. He's still my son. He still has my DNA. He still has my last name. But as he grows and matures, he'll understand how his dad is a pastor and a father and a husband how his dad has two daughters, how his dad does this, that, and the other, but it only comes as he grows. Perhaps the real question we should stop and ask is, where are we hung up in our own personal doctrine and we've not advanced further in our relationship with God? Because whatever it is we think we know today, there's still more to know about it because God's doctrines, in a sense, are infinite in their ability to reveal themselves in more aspects and more understanding. And probably more condemning than that is great so you know all mysteries how much of it's actually changing your life saint patrick we're talking fourth fifth century ireland doesn't know much they didn't have a bible yet he's preaching the gospel with the three-leaf clover and revival breaks out 
and it's only partially right. But now I'm reminded of, oh, what's his name there in the book of Acts? And he preached mightily, Apollos, having known only John's baptism, mighty in speech and eloquent. And then you had Aquila and Priscilla found him and pulled him aside and expounded unto him the gospel more fully. The man is in revival preaching John's baptism. And God is confirming it even though it's a dead baptism. So I, I just throw all these truths or observations out there so we don't get religiously indignant over what we think we know. Because it's great what you know, but it's better if it's actually changing your life. And we understand the Trinity, but we don't see revival like St. Patrick did. Amen. However, upon closer inspection, his green analogy was really partialism, each leaf of the clover being a member of the Godhead, but all three leaves necessary to combine and make a whole God. This is heresy because it divides God into thirds and falls, uh, fails to recognize the unity of the Trinity. And then my question is, what happens if it's a four-leaf clover? I thought those were the best. What do you do with that? Arianism is another one. If you do any theological study, you'll find Arianism quoted a lot. Named for Arius, a third century Christian uh, presbyter or elder in the church who was later dismissed as a heretic. This teaching holds that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and are therefore not divine. Note this is very similar to monarchianism in that there is one God supreme and then there's a lesser son and a lesser spirit. Arius held that the son had a beginning because he was, quote, begotten. And that because the New Testament describes him as growing and learning, he could not be divine. That is one of the great mysteries of Christ. We consider him to be omniscient, yet he had to learn obedience. We consider him to be omniscient, yet he doesn't know the day that he's returning. Uh, we consider him to be omnipotent, and yet he could do no miracles in his hometown. Well, I thought if you're omnipotent, you had all power, but he could not do mighty miracles in his own hometown. That's one of the mysteries of the incarnation. And the modern church won't even kick these ideas around anymore because we're too busy going to church growth conferences, figuring out how to put lasers and techno music in the worship service. So consequently, you got 15,000 people at your church, but probably only 60 of them know Christ. And the rest of them come to hook up, shack up, get their coffee, and go home. I was talking with a friend of mine, and their son is on staff at a, a massive church. And they said they, their church offers like a full-service kind of Starbucks or Panera bread. You know, when your church is 10,000 people, your sanctuary seats 4,000. And they made the, the, the observation that never crossed my mind. When people come to church and you're serving them food right before service, well, they have to come and go a lot. They have to come and bring in their cup holders. They said in this church, they actually, people come into service with cup holders, like the cup trays, you know, the, the cardboard thing that can hold four. And then, your, you know, your bag of bagels or your whatever, your coffee cake, whatever it is. So then you have to kind of, excuse me, excuse me, like you're at a sporting arena, excuse me, or the movie theater, popcorn, excuse me. Then you have to set it down. Then you have to go back, excuse me, excuse, while service is going on, excuse me, excuse me, to go get napkins or paper towels. And my friend said, and if you're my age, that coffee kicks in in 25 minutes. And so, excuse me, excuse me, oh, ooh, huh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. So, 
Not only are they not paying attention, but you keep disrupting people. 1 Corinthians 11 says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Paul said, lest you come to condemnation. <coughs> so uh, they said that uh, as uh, in a recent service, the Holy Spirit actually f- started moving again. And there was so much movement. The Holy Ghost was moving. People were coming to the altar, but there was so much movement. The pastor's wife got up, grabbed the microphone, and screamed at the church. God is moving. Be still, lest you grieve him. And nobody listened to her. They just kept doing their thing. So why brag that your church is 10,000 when 80% of them have never met God and don't even know the move of the Holy Ghost and won't even honor the pastor's wife when she's screaming at you? That's not revival. That's the great falling away. Amen. And so God have mercy. And uh, man... What's wrong with Americans? You can't skip a meal? Well, you should. Um, let's see. That's where we were reading off. There we go. Arius held that the Son had a beginning because he was begotten, and that because the New Testament describes him as growing and learning, he could not be divine. Universalists and Jehovah's Witnesses would technically hold Arianistic views of Christ's divinity because they don't believe he is divine. Both groups reduce Jesus Christ from God to a created being. We do not believe that. He forever was. And you can even get into deeper theological discussions that if he's in a glorified body, is he forever eternal in that glorified body and yet God? Quiet. Does he forever eternal have holes in his hands and holes in his feet? Is Christ forever in an eternal glorified body being the resurrected Son of God, yet God? Quiet, because you think, I don't even know what to think of that. I haven't even ever thought of it. Think about it if we were a Starbucks church or a donut church when every message was about how awesome you were. And we would never teach you to set your mind on Christ, to even consider this, just to even ponder What is the nature of Jesus Christ after the resurrection? That helps get your eyes off of you, which is where they should be. You can grow a big church telling people they're the most important thing in the world. And I like to point out what a good Baptist man said. Jesus didn't die for you. Jesus died for his father. He said, thy will I have come. Oh God, in the volume of the book is written to me, I have come to do thy will. He didn't die to glorify you. Yeah, he died to save you, but he didn't die for you, though we do say that. But technically, he died in obedience to his father. But we like to teach it. He died for you because it makes people feel important. When it should be the gospel of repentance, we're not here to make you feel important. We're here to make you feel scared and condemned so you'll repent and come to Christ. Martin Luther said, how can I preach the good news if you don't fully know the bad news? And the good news is appreciated when you realize how damned you are to begin with. When you realize that God counts you an enemy, and then we say, but by the way, he died for you when you were yet his enemy, and he redeemed you, called you back to himself. If you'll repent, that's good news. But we're, we don't preach the gospel much anymore in this nation. We just tell people how awesome they are, and they like our church because it's the biggest, fastest growing weed on the block. The common analogy used to demonstrate Arianism is that of the Son, S-U-N. The Son is the Father, 
The heat and the light energy are the holy of the Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So what they say is, well, the Trinity is like the Sun, that is a star, and it's giving off both light, which is Jesus, because He is the light of the world, and heat energy, which is the Holy Spirit, because you can't touch Him, but you can feel Him. Well, that sounds really sweet, wonderful, but it is Arianistic, <laughs> and it is a heresy, because that implies that both the Son and the Holy Spirit are created beings emanating from the Father when they are separate persons co-Godhead with the Father. It's a mystery. We can't split it. We are finite in our own understanding. This example is heresy because it espouses that the Son and the Spirit are creations of the Father just as light and heat energy are creations of a star. Subordinationism. And this is the last of the big words because then we have two little subdivisions here. And then we'll look at these uh, creeds. This doctrine asserts that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are inferior to God the Father in nature and being and are therefore subordinate or of a lesser order or rank compared to the Father. One form of subordinationism holds that though the Son is divine, He is not equal in being or attributes, and that's heresy. It's not accurate. The First Council of Constantinople in 381 condemns subordinationism as a form of Arianism. Now, we should rejoice because all these heresies were attacked ridiculed and debunked 1,600 years ago. And back in those days, those men didn't have iPhones, iPods, television. They studied the scriptures. They collected the writings of the church fathers, and they saw the move of God. Like I've said as of late, it seems to me, even pastoring in America, our doctrine in this nation is thimble deep, and yet the Bible hasn't changed. We just don't give ourselves over to the study of it. And it's not hard to do. You just have to study your Bible. And you might see something different than I see or come to a different conclusion, but at least you're studying your Bible. Subordinationism. That's the belief that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are a lesser order or rank than the Father. Now, we want to contrast that with economic subordinationism versus ontological. And I know these are crazy, complex words. Economic subordinate or economics here doesn't refer to money, but it refers to the arrangement and organization. Ontology is the study of existence or being or nature of existence. So when you, if you ever do any studies in philosophy, you'll see the term ontological over and over and over again. You'll also see the term of emanation over and over and over again, and that's why you can get a master's degree in philosophy and can't communicate with people because your words are too big. <laughs> and that's why those guys usually get jobs at universities to keep that thing alive because everybody else wants to make money. And I'm not sure you can make a lot of money talking about ontology or emanations of, uh, what was the one term I kept reading over and over again? Expedite the emanation. You must expedite the emanation. All right, just say hurry up and bring things to an end. <laughs> Let's hurry up and get this done. I mean, get her done. That would be expedite the emanation. <laughs> get her done. All right, I got that. <laughs> But you don't sound educated saying, get her done. Wrap it up. You must expedite the emanation. <laughs> yes, professor. Get her done. Economic subordinationism deals with the arrangement of activities, while ontological subordinationism deals with the essence of being. To say that Jesus is ontologically subordinate to the Father is heresy. To say that in his existence, his existentialism, there's another fancy big word, to say that his being, his nature, is 
subordinate or of a lesser rank than the Father is heresy because he is not. He is co-equal with God. He is God. <clears throat> he is the word spoken. He is from the beginning. He is, he is one with the Father. But to say that Jesus Christ is economically subordinate is accurate. And economics doesn't mean money here. Uh, to say that Jesus is ontologically subordinate to the Father's heresy, that is, he does not, uh, to say he does not exist as an inferior person. But economically speaking, and we get the word economics from the Greek oikonomikos, the arrangement of activities, it has become applied to money, but philosophically and existentially speaking, economics refers to the order of arrangement. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are, are both subordinate to the Father. That means in the arrangement of how things are established, in the unison of God and in the wisdom of God, and by God we mean Elohim, the mighty ones, there is an agreement among the unity of the Trinity that the Son is submitted to the Father and the Holy Spirit is submitted to the Son. So there is a subordination there. Now, if you, some folks don't like that. It bugs them, but Jesus Christ said it was so. Jesus Christ said, I must be about my Father's business. That talks of subordination. Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. That speaks of subordination. Jesus Christ said of the Holy Spirit, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. That speaks of subordination. But there is folks that would lump that together as an ontological subordinationism and would reject it as a heresy. But you can't reject what Jesus Christ himself said. I can of myself do nothing. It is the Father that worketh the works. And then also, uh, if you look at John 5, 37, 6, 38, and Hebrews 10, 7, which all say, I've come to do your will. It is the Father that has sent me. If it is the Father sending, then the Son was submitted. But that deals with the economic condition of the Trinity. And it's not our place to ask why or how. It's in the wisdom of God. Do you, do you grasp that? All right, because we're using big fancy words, but these are topics that have been studied for 1,600 years. They're out there to be found. They're out there to be researched. You can go pull it, search any of these words if you want to, and you'll see this is what we're talking about. So let's look at the first council of Nicaea because we only got about six or seven minutes left. These heresies arose as the early church was being established and working out doctrine. Consequently, at the recommendation of a synod-led Husius of Cordoba, Emperor Constantine I, that was the Christian emperor who made Christianity legal and outlawed persecution against them, he convened the most famous council, uh, this most famous council to respond to the arising heresies, most notably Arianism. The assembled church bishops that came from all over the Mediterranean region in Asia Minor, they agreed upon a statement of faith drafted to summarily refute the anti-Trinitarian heresies of their day. There were more to come, more heresies, but what they developed is called the Nicene Creed. Let's read that. We actually... We've taught our children, or we have been in the process of teaching our children the Apostles' Creed, which is a little bit simpler, but we may switch up and also teach our children, our children as in my, my blood children, not our church children. We may teach them the Nicene Creed as well because it gives you the foundation of Christian doctrine in an easily remembered, codified, unchanging form. This, this, this creed is 1,600 years old, and churches still read it this morning. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So he starts off by saying one God. We believe in one Lord, 
Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, eternally, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. You can see they're attacking every heresy we've just spoken of. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. So he makes the distinction that through Jesus, all things were made. So again, this is brilliant. It's 1,600 years old, and they're distinguishing very sound Trinitarian doctrine. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. There's so much doctrine in that. It's beautiful. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, that means general, not uh, holy Catholic, not Roman Catholic or Irish Catholic, but Catholic here. The word Catholic means general or universal. We believe in one universal, holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. There's more doctrine in that Nicene Creed than there is in a sea of seeker-friendly churches today. And if you're a good Bible student, as you read this, you, can, you know what scriptures they're pulling from. You know where, there, 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 there. But do you see how the Nicene Creed distinguishes the Trinity in their individual roles because they all play different roles in Elohim's interaction with mankind? Let's read part of the Athanasian Creed because we're almost out of time. You can see it takes up a good page. We're only going to read the first paragraph. And you can see this is 200 years after the Nicene Creed. This combats further heresies that arose, and they're a lot more thorough. And I don't know of any church that teaches their children for confirmation of the Athanasian Creed because it's just a little too wordy. Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, or the general universal faith, which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So they don't seem to believe in a once saved, always saved. And the Catholic general faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also they are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord... So we are forbidden, are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords? The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, 
not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved. Let him thus think of the Trinity. That's pretty watertight right there. If you can squeak a heresy into that, you must be a lawyer. And we won't go on to there, but that is the famous Athanasian Creed. The most famous uh, Athanasian Creed is the God and Trinity and Trinity and Unity. And again, if you read that and you know your Bible, scriptures are going off in your mind where they're pulling these things from. This thing has been under attack for 18, 1900 years, and yet it has been thoroughly resolved and established for at least 1800 years as well. Uh, we're not going to throw people under the bus because maybe they're oneness Pentecostals because I've been in oneness Pentecostal churches. I never felt the presence of God grieved. I saw people get born again. I saw the Holy Ghost move. They just don't know the Holy Ghost in his essence. <laughs> they don't understand the division there and yet the co-eternity. So hopefully you've learned something in these five lessons on the Trinity. If you were to go to seminary, I'm probably sure you could take a whole semester or two or three on these doctrines. Uh, but there it is in five Sunday school lessons. And that should be enough to get you covered because I guarantee you not a person in here has gone back and looked at all the scriptures we've covered in the last five weeks because last week's lesson alone had over 100 scriptures in it. And if anybody has actually gone back this week and looked at those scriptures, I'll give you a $100 bill. Going once, going twice. Well, you missed out. That was some prosperity you just flushed. <laughs> it pays, sometimes literally, to study your Bible. Amen.